I stand before you to officially launch my campaign for a second term as President of the United States. All those of you who've been knocked down, counted out, left behind, this is your campaign. Welcome to the Swing 2020. In the most uncertain year in modern history, the only predictable thing about American politics is the unpredictable. This election is no horse race. Crisis management is on the ballot. It's the incumbent Donald Trump and Vice President Joe Biden vying for the White House. But this isn't just a vote for Commander-in-Chief. It's state houses, rural congressional districts, powerful governor's mansions, and bellwether Senate seats. It's prosecutors, sheriffs, and superintendents. And the results will reveal the pulse of the American people. The swing, searching for the heartbeat of a nation, is counting us down to November 3rd. Here are your hosts, Chris Baccia and Emmanuel Barbari. Hello and welcome to the Swing 2020 50 Days Out. I'm Chris Boncha with Emmanuel Barbari and we welcome you to the show now halfway home until Election Day 2020 uh, when votes are cast in person, although at the same time they are being cast in the mail right now, millions of votes um, going through the USPS system uh, in order to be counted, hopefully prior to Election Day, but potentially after Election Day. And when all of those things are counted up, we will have a winner in the 2020 campaign for president. That'll be either President Donald Trump or the former Vice President Joe Biden. But Emmanuel, it is sort of a crazy thing that we are only 50 days away. Pretty wild, Chris. And when you consider the fact that millions, as you mentioned, of votes are being cast as we speak, they're in the ether. They are affecting the outcome that we will eventually see, whether that's November 3rd or in the days following. There have been so many developments already in this race, and I'm excited for many more episodes like this one to come, where we're breaking down the headlines and the various developments that are going to shape not only the candidates, but their opponents, and ultimately make up the voters' mind, those swing voters, ahead of November 3rd. And we promise to keep you abreast with all of that, so that's what we plan to do. Last week, we discussed a race that had really entered um, into a home stretch, if you will, a campaign that really started to look again like a presidential campaign. And you even see President Trump having rallies, indoor rallies, that is. And it's almost hard to find the distinction between the campaign of old and the coronavirus pandemic restyled campaign uh, because the president seems to be falling back on some traditional styles. At the same time, you have what what we both consider to be really um, of an eventful break in this race, and that comes in the form of Bob Woodward, who is not new to reporting or breaking big stories. He, of course, famously or infamously took down uh, the 36th president of the United States. That was Richard Nixon. And in this case, it's a series of inter interviews with President Trump that have become public, at least some of them. We have audio from a February 7th phone call with the president in which Woodward was asking him about the coronavirus pandemic, which wasn't a pandemic at the time. I should be clear there. It was a virus and it was out an outbreak in China. The president 
says, and I quote, this is deadly stuff. You just breathe the air and that's how it's passed. And so that's a very tricky one. That's a very delicate one. It's also more deadly than even your strenuous flus, end quote. And this comes concurrently with the president's public posturing of the coronavirus as something very much like a strenuous flu or just an ordinary flu. Downplaying was, of course, something that we all observed um, during those early phases. And in a phone call with Woodward about a month later, Trump himself confirmed that that was the strategy. He said, and I'm quoting here as well, I always tried to downplay it. Um, these are significant words from the commander in chief, from the chief executive who was tasked with um, fighting uh, and protecting Americans from a 100-year virus, a 100-year pandemic. So let's start off the top with thoughts and reaction to the Woodward revelations, Emmanuel. And it hits the president, Chris, at, I think, his strength that he's tried to portray throughout this entire pandemic and this difficult time here in 2020, which is that he acted early. He acted against the advice of others. He acted in ways that others would not have with the China travel ban and actions of the like. This really hits him on the accountability that the Biden camp has been trying to portray in that he downplayed and did not take the virus seriously enough. And of course, President Trump might counter with he always took it seriously, but he didn't want to jump up and down. He didn't want to cause panic with the American people, which have been the common detractions so far. But it's undeniable what the audio said. When you piece together the audio with the subsequent actions and the, the mentions to the press, they're, they're glaring. I don't think this is one of your general attacks that might go through the dust and really has no effect. It's one that could stick and one that could be talked about the remainder of the way, especially in this information-heavy society, because when you look at what he said in private, when you look at what he said in public days after, it's almost the complete opposite. And the question will be raised, were you being forthright enough with the American people in a time that they desperately needed it? And you're right that it plays at his strengths, because one of them, and uh, this has been common knowledge really since he entered politics, is his authenticity. He projects himself as someone who says it like it is, tells the American people what's going on. And in that way, he has the trust of many of his supporters. He is not a politician, they say. He uh, speaks directly to what's going on. And here's an example where you have audio proof of the president uh, having a different position than the one he projected, than the one that importantly here the one that he told a nation that required information, that required sound communication for their health, for their safety. Um, so, you know, if you were personally affected by the coronavirus, but even if you weren't, nobody in this country has not been affected by the toll that this has taken on our society, not just um, lives lost, but all the other things that we've lost, which are certainly secondary to lives lost, but everyone's been affected. And it kind of leads me to sort of a bottom line prediction for this election, which is that people are going to vote on how the president handled the coronavirus pandemic. They won't vote on how Joe Biden handled the coronavirus pandemic because Joe Biden was not the president. Joe Biden is at this point 
an American citizen, a former vice president. He did, was not in power. He was not in those briefings in February and even January when American health officials began to understand how bad this could be. That was only one man. That was only one president. And so, of course, and we've discussed this on the podcast, the vice president wants to make this a campaign that uh, is ultimately a referendum on how the president has handled the coronavirus pandemic. To me, the Bob Woodward tape um, is, could not be more damning in that way. Chris, you hit it on the head in the sense that voters will essentially decide whether they're tired of this leader or are fed up with the way this entire year is handled. And a big overarching theme of this year is COVID-19, which is why we are where we are and how so many lives have been affected and so many families have gone with it. So it's not going to be, oh, would Joe Biden have done a better job with COVID-19? It will be, do we want someone who has the ability to do a better job with COVID-19? And that's whoever the challenger is. So it hits him on the seniors argument. There are plenty of seniors in this country who are worried and don't know where the direction lies, really makes you think twice if you're a swing voter about how we were led this entire time. And if that swing voter is led to believe that we're in this spot and potentially facing a second spike that could come the way this fall and weren't being told the facts, weren't being told the cold hard truth early on, that things could have been much different. And I think it changes the narrative a bit, at least the opposition narrative to the president's handling of the coronavirus. Because there was an opposition narrative that the president was too foolish to understand uh, the extent of potential damage, the the potential toll that COVID-19 could take. This tape dispels that. This tape throws that out. The president understood. And that's a little bit different from an argument that the president um, was too incompetent to handle this. So you see on Twitter, he knew, hashtag he knew, which to me is it's a bit more of an insidious uh, attack. And, and, and it's now based on real audio that you hear from the president, which is I always tried to downplay it. Um, and so when you hear that, there, there, there's something a little bit more uh, sinister about hearing someone who understood it but withheld information. And then you could argue that that was wise because he didn't want to incite, um, he didn't want to incite uh, unrest or, or panic, as he, as he said. But, you know, I also think that a lot of voters um, do value honesty. I, I think him being president right now tells us a lot about what the American voter wants in a president. They want someone that they trust. And, and here's a moment where he has really undermined trust that he's built up with, with many Americans. I, I don't know that they will see it that way, but from an outside angle, from an impartial angle, this seems like something that could crush some of the trust. Chris, you heard it at the RNC. It was the message of, you may not always like what's said. You may not always be a fan of what President Trump brings to the table, but he is fighting on your behalf and he will tell you where he stands. Well, this is the exact opposite of that. And if you put the quotes, again, behind closed doors to Bob Woodward, which is now not behind closed doors, it's out in the public, to what he said in the ensuing days and the ensuing press conferences, that's not telling the American people where you stand. Because 
if it is, it would be forthright and at least leading them on to the fact, not making people panic, but leading them on to the fact that, hey, you may need to keep your distance. Hey, you need to wash your hands extra. Maybe introducing the idea of protective equipment and masks and enforcing social distancing. These are things that could have been done, especially if the gravity of the pandemic was known at that time, which was early February. And again, after the travel ban. So already actions were being taken. Groundwork was being laid. But during February, you saw massive Trump rallies. You saw the president not really creating the infrastructure to tend to this matter and to take it as seriously as he eventually had to. So these are all things that, again, may not tip the scales, but make you think twice, and also things that the Biden camp is going to really have to think about and how they are going to create their line of attack and present Joe Biden as a better option because there is plenty to work with. And the Biden tack uh, in response has been, you know, sort of, sort of to stick with their talking point on the president from a very early point, which is that he can't be trusted, that, um, that he isn't frank with the American people. Um, I, I think this is illuminated by a question that both candidates have received, and they've answered in very different ways, which is if the coronavirus struck again, if that's a second wave, whether that is this fall, whether that's winter, potentially bleeding into a new administration, would you shut the country down again? Would you put Americans through um, the sort of lockdowns uh, that they faced in, in cities and states across the country? And the vice president's answer was yes, I would if I had to. Um, and that sort of gets at the point of if I can save American lives, if that is what the doctors and the scientists tell me, that is what I'm going to do. Those words won't come out of the president's mouth, whether whether he would shut the country down or not, he, he's certainly not going to be forthright about that now. He, he does not want Americans to have the idea that they may have to lock down again. And this is something he sees as an advantage. I see that as an advantage for the president too. No one in the country wants to lock down. It's something that a lot of people want to hear is, we don't have to do that again. But the vice president is taking the angle of, even if people don't want to hear that, they need to know that as the president, I am going to do what is right for them. And, and that's a direct, direct distinction from what the president demonstrated in this tape, which is that, you know, I won't really communicate clearly with the American people for the sake of whether that's um, uh, order or whatever it is. Um, so I, it's, a, it's a really clear distinction, Emmanuel. That's what Joe Biden has been trying to portray a lot throughout this campaign is I'll listen. I'll be the president who leads by example. I will always tell you where I sit and where I speak. He's going to continue to do that, whether it hurts him or not, because you already heard it out of President Trump's mouth. The criticism of Joe Biden saying that he would shut the country down again. And of course, there's some disinformation involved there. He said, if the scientists indicated that it was necessary, that's what he would do. He wasn't just going to shut down the economy. But this is a top issue. This may be the top issue, depending on how quickly COVID-19 storms back in the fall. People are going to look for that leadership. People are going to look for that strength and that person who meets you where you are and also listens to the experts. When you look at what President Trump wants the narrative to entail, it's more the economy coming back 
and the law and order message than any word about COVID-19. The less COVID-19 is mentioned, the better it plays for the incumbent president. So that's something to monitor. And his Woodward book certainly makes you think about it more, the more the president could be in trouble come the fall. And another area of distinction between the candidates was on display just today, in which Joe Biden from Delaware spoke about the climate crisis, which is, of course, folded into historic wildfires on the American West Coast in California. There's nearly 100 wildfires raging there. The president was in California, met with the governor there, met with California uh, state officials. And the vice president from his uh, home, not near his home, was talking about the president, called him a climate arsonist, called him a climate denier. Um, The president, on the other hand, different tack in California with state officials who are going through this, said the planet will cool, insisted that the planet will cool. So you have two different policy tacks there. Um, But you have a a clear area where Joe Biden um, sees something to seize. And this gets back to earlier conversations we've had about a part of the Democratic base that Joe Biden probably can't win without. And those are disaffected, young, progressive voters who did not show up for Hillary Clinton, who are very opposed to the establishment Democrat. And the idea is that Joe Biden can play differently to those voters. And something like climate change seems to be an area where he thinks... um, He has room to grow with voters of that sort. And whether it's a climate change issue or not, what's going on in California, and it's striking what has gone on not only over the last week, but over the last several months and in the last couple of years and hasn't garnered that much national attention, whether it really is based on climate change, it does not hurt Joe Biden in the slightest to mention it and to to play to that part of the party because It's something that's going to have to be addressed, and it's something people expect to be addressed. So into the home stretch, we're moving toward a debate in two weeks. That's two weeks from tomorrow. Again, 50 days away. That's in the title of the episode, so no need for repeating it. But that that, we're moving in. We're circling in. We're less than two months away. Path to victories. Both candidates have different paths to victory, and this is something that the closer we get, the more clear that picture looks. And I think the ad race is one way that really frames this, how the candidates are spending their campaign war chests, how, you know, which states they're diverting money toward, which states they're diverting money away from. So on that front, updates in the race, Donald Trump pulling ads out of Nevada for a week. Um, He'll probably be back there, but that's a state that he lost by just two points to Hillary Clinton in 2016. So it's one that he may want to grab back. Other than that, the president appears to be on defense. He's investing in Arizona. He's investing in Florida. Those are two states um, that the vice president wants to pick off from Trump. He also pulled ads from Nebraska, North Carolina, Maine, but maybe that's besides the point. You look at some money coming out of Wisconsin. Does that signal fear in an area that, to me, Emmanuel, he really needs to win two of those three states in the Midwest. I know I'm throwing a lot at you. It's weird because you get the sense that the campaign is looking for a late blitz. They're, they keep indicating that that's how they won in 2016, which was picking up steam late and really making a late play for some of these states. Do they have the same strategy? 
it's strange because it's an incumbent. It's someone who should be playing out of a position of strength, but it almost feels like, as you mentioned, they're on the defensive. They're the underdog. They're the ones trying to pick up steam. And it kind of plays to that narrative. You saw the New York Times article last week that they're running out of campaign war chest, which was spent in a lot of inconsequential areas over the last year. And part of the reason they made the campaign manager switch with Brad Parscale. So if they are running out of money and President Trump has said he would fund any remaining deficits that they needed to pick up, it could hurt them at the end of the day and it could result in that late blitz. And whether that late blitz is enough, especially with all the early votes that are being cast, is another conversation. But while they are in that position of vulnerability and they're trying to defend states like Arizona and Florida, and Arizona seems to be in the lean Democrat column from all the polling out recently, a person like Mike Bloomberg comes into the fold. Former Democratic uh, presidential candidate, former New York City mayor, who pledged that he would help elect Joe Biden to the White House and said he would be a massive contributor to that effort. Stay true to his wish. $100 million to be spent in Florida to help Joe Biden pick off that state. Chris, I think this is crucial because Florida is an expensive state. And it's always a swing state. It's always a one, two, maximum three, four point margin. You need to spend in a lot of different cities, a lot of different counties, if you want to have a massive impact in that area. And if he can take care of a lot of that effort, turns it into a four state race for Joe Biden's camp, which just came off its best fundraising month of the entire general election and the, and the best fundraising month in presidential election history. So if you can turn it into a simplified three or four state race for their camp, while Bloomberg tends to Florida in a lot of different ways, and we know the effect his ads had on the primary, I feel like that's a major development when you mentioned the war chest of this race. And let me make a correction to um, what I said before. He pulled ads from Nevada and Ohio is where he went dark, but he invested in, as I mentioned, Arizona and Florida, but also Nebraska, North Carolina, Maine. So those last three, he didn't pull money. He actually invested money in those three. Um, interesting that he's going dark in Ohio. You mentioned Florida, where he'll, where the vice president will actually be tomorrow as they make a push for a, a potentially really important state here. And it was one that looked like it would be in the president's column. It seems like a state that is essential for him to keep in his column. He may be able to lose one of those Midwestern states, whether that's Michigan or Wisconsin, but he probably can't lose Florida. And the fact that the vice president's campaign believes that Florida's in reach, they're investing, they're spending time there, uh, shows uh, the potential that they think they can win big on election night. At least that's their goal. And if they get Florida on election night, and there's an interesting point here, which is that Florida counts absentee ballots beginning three weeks before election day. So they should have everything counted in ready to make an announcement on election night. With that being the, with that being the case, uh, it's possible that the vice president sees Florida as his key to be able to claim victory on November 3rd. And that's always been the killer punch. That's always been the state that Biden doesn't necessarily need to get, but it's still important to get. It improves his odds drastically and basically would make him the presumptive winner if he got it on election night. Let's be real here. And you mentioned the three weeks before with the vote by mail tallying beginning in the state of Florida. It's really the way it should be in these other states, which are very late to be passing reforms and, and laws to make it short of a disaster 
in November. But again, pivoting back to the importance of Florida, if he's able to grab it on election night, that makes Trump's path to victory virtually impossible. There would probably be one or two paths remaining for President Trump, and they'd be very unlikely. Biden, on the other hand, has several paths that do not include the state of Florida. If you want to look at it from the Trump perspective, if he has Florida, North Carolina, and Georgia, add Arizona into that mix, Pennsylvania only gets him to 260. And then he would need one of Wisconsin, Michigan, maybe Minnesota, which would be a flip, to get him over the threshold. If Biden picks off Florida, the president goes down to 231. Even with Michigan and Wisconsin, you're at 257. So it is a death blow if President Trump doesn't get Florida. It is a must-win state. So that's going to be an interesting race to monitor. I think it's important that Biden's visiting there and making a big play because at the very least, if you don't get Florida, you still have your paths. But if you make a play at it, it puts Trump on the defensive thinking he does not have his quote-unquote home state now short up. And I, I think it's intentionally branded as his quote-unquote home state because it is that important that he can drive Donald Trump's support in that state. The campaign is known um, from the get-go that it was must-win. To wrap here with a final sort of uh, editorial, actually the Wall Street Journal read a very interesting piece this morning on economy and how economy is the president's strength. Um, we know that he pulls over 50% in terms of approval of how he handles the American economy. That's That number hovers at around 53. His approval rating, though, is about 10 points away from that. It's more like 43, 42. So you're seeing like 10 points of distance between what is normally an indicator, uh, you know, normally almost tied to approval, but you're seeing distance there, and that's actually unique. If you look at modern presidents, you've never seen a situation where approval of economic policy uh, is actually better than approval of the president's job, his job rating. So this sort of gets at a theory that this is not a pocketbook election, uniquely, because we almost always characterize um, in politics, elections to be economic choices, more almost more so than they are political choices. We're looking at an election here where it might be more a public health election. It may be more a leadership unity election, um, something a bit more vague, a bit less concrete than um, people's pocketbooks. And this sort of gets to a point that we made in the last episode, 60 Days, which is that that plays for the vice president. That is going to be his tack. He is going to try to steer this election in that direction toward um, some, and, and this is what you saw him demonstrate in the DNC. The president, if he can have success, and as we preview the second half of our 100 days and the final 50 days away until November 3rd, his tack is going to be to steer this election toward economy, 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 even if you're surprised by that, considering the state of the American economy, that is where he finds success. Although that convention may be different now, Emmanuel. Anything that plays to the president's favor is not COVID. And we talked about it last episode. Anytime you see that economy approval above 50% gives President Trump a fighting chance because that's always a big 
point in an election, it's always a, am I better off than I was four years ago? Although that could change this time around. Not many people in this country are better off than they were four years ago because of this year, because of COVID-19. So it's a weird twist of, is it an economy election? Can President Trump win on that message? Or is it something completely different because he's not going to lose his own base on COVID? Can he convince the swing voter that his record on the economy is good enough to to build this country back? It is strange that those numbers persist. And when you look at general American concerns, the fact that it remains so high goes to show you that he has one prevailing strength. And it's on Joe Biden, if he wants to win as a challenger, to go away from that strength. Because that's the one area, it seems, that he continues to prevail and could prevail all the way to the finish line. You mentioned that swing voter, someone who may have voted for the president last time as a lesser of two evils, who looked at the two candidates like neither of them, but saw the president as superior, maybe just edging the 2016 Democratic nominee. Well, that is the voter that the vice president is chasing. That is the voter who counts um, when everything is settled and we pick a president for the next four years. That's what we'll be tracking here on The Swing 2020. Looking to answer all of these burning questions um, and find the pulse of that swing voter. This is 50 Days Out. We thank you for joining us. We will see you 10 days away from now. 10 days closer to that presidential debate, 10 days closer to November 3rd. In the meantime, have a good week, and we will see you next time. For Emmanuel Barbari, I'm Chris Baccia. This is The Swing 2020.